Hi, welcome to today's uh, CHEST podcast. I have with me Dr. Laura Myers and Dr. Joseph Zebrak. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, an assistant faculty at, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in the Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care. Dr. Laura Myers um, is a pulmonary and critical care physician at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. She completed a two-year fellowship at Harvard Medical School in patient quality and safety that was funded by Harvard's malpractice insurer, the Controlled Risk Insurance Company, or CRICO. CRICO provided the data for this study that we're discussing today into the characteristics of medical malpractice claims involving pulmonary and critical care physicians. Also on the line, we have Dr. Joseph Zebrak, who is a pulmonary and critical care physician at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He has extensive experience in the intensive care unit supervising trainees, in addition to being an expert in pulmonary disease diagnosis and management in the ambulatory setting. He has more than 10 years of experience providing expert witness testimony in medical malpractice claims. So, Dr. Myers, you wrote an article on medical malpractice involving pulmonary and critical care physicians in the November issue of CHEST. You examined medical malpractice claims from a national database, compared claim characteristics when internal medicine doctors were the primary responsible provider versus pulmonary and critical care physicians, and then you performed multiple regression to identify factors that could predict whether or not a claim would result in payment. Dr. Zebrak, you wrote an accompanying editorial, Reducing Patient and Physician Harm. Now, Dr. Myers, the results of your study found that claims involving pulmonary and critical care physicians differed from those involving internal medicine physicians in several ways. Can you tell us some of the most notable differences? Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about the article. So we looked at a variety of factors. Um, some of them were care settings. So for example, whether uh, patients were being treated in the inpatient or outpatient setting, harm severity ranging from emotional severity to, uh, sorry, emotional harm to death, the various allegations and final diagnoses that were found in malpractice claims. And we decided to analyze the data by inpatient and outpatient setting because really the care is so different by setting. And ultimately what we found was about two-thirds of uh, the claims that involved pulmonary critical care physicians resulted from inpatient care. And that was more uh, than claims in which primary care physicians were the primary responsible provider. There was also very high severity of harm. So about 80% of the harm events actually resulted in death or permanent injury. And that was more common than in the primary care setting. Overall, when you look at the final diagnoses of these claims in which pulmonary critical care physicians were the primary responsible provider, the top diagnosis was lung cancer. So that occurred in about 10% of claims. And the most common allegation was medical management for inpatient claims in which a pulmonary critical care provider was involved and then diagnosis for outpatient claims. And those tended to make sense. Excellent. Now, you also studied payment characteristics of these claims. Can you tell us what you found about that? Absolutely. The payment results were interesting. Uh, so what we did was sum up the payments that were made on behalf of all defendants that were either through settlement or a plaintiff verdict, and then reported the results in the 2016 valuation to be able to account for inflation. 
And we found that only a third of the claims actually resulted in payment, but the median indemnity paid on behalf of defendants per claim was in the 285000 range. And that actually put the pulmonary critical care uh, specialty as the 12th highest out of the 69 specialties that were coded in the database. And we essentially attributed that high uh, median indemnity payment to the high severity of harm. We also did a multiple regression analysis to try to understand uh, the multiple variables uh, that uh, were associated with payment status. And we ended up finding two variables that were statistically significant. One was that uh, outpatient care increased the likelihood of claim payment and temporary harm decreased the likelihood of uh, claim payment. And we had hoped to actually find more variables that were statistically significant, um, but didn't, which is interesting in and of itself. And what prompted you to pursue this as a research topic? So I'm interested in learning health systems, and that's a uh, kind of a buzzword now um, in which uh, health systems and health uh, care providers use data uh, that come from their clinics or their hospitals, and it feeds back into a continuous cycle of quality improvement. Some hospital systems are um, more like learning health systems than others, but I think our, we aspire to be um, a learning health system so that we can improve the care of patients um, in, that we take care of every day. Um, this sort of research uses the data um, to try and understand how to prevent the harms from happening in the first place. Excellent. So one of the things I found particularly interesting um, as a pulmonary and critical care physician is that while 64% of the claims occurred in inpatient settings, that's almost two-thirds were in inpatient settings, only 26% of those were in the ICU. Do you have any hypotheses on why there were relatively few suits resulting from such an intense environment with critically ill patients? It's actually a fascinating result. Most of my clinical work has been in the critical care setting, and I have to say going into the study thought that there would be a higher likelihood of payment um, in the inpatient setting, and the ICU being so intense um, would probably account for the majority of that. Um, I think that we think of the ICU as this high-stakes environment, uh, and that could translate then over to higher malpractice risk. But I think that in the end, there are a couple reasons why only the minor minority of claims ended up coming from the ICU. The first is that there is a fair amount of literature at this point on the communication strategies within the ICU. And I think to date, it's become integral into most of our training programs. So when I was a fellow, we had um, sessions where we did role playing with families and we practiced giving bad news and how to deliver it in a way that was most receptive by families. We also have strategies in the ICUs where I work to help families cope with bad news. Um, the second is that I think families tend to understand what the ICU means, um, you know, simply in its name, intensive care unit. Um, you know, people uh, see their loved ones 
um, being supported on ventilators, needing medications to keep them alive, needing procedures to keep them alive. And I think that's a very different scenario um, in which um, uh, pa- patients and their families are coping in real time. Um, and that doesn't mean that um, harms and errors, preventable harms and errors don't happen in the ICU, but uh, they are actually happening at the same time in which they are under our care. Whereas in the outpatient setting, for example, Patients could, you know, um, go home from the hospital and realize uh, that there was a missed lung nodule uh, and maybe not realize this for years. And then they're not under the care, let's say, of the provider uh, that missed the diagnosis. And it's just much more difficult to um, help them cope at that time. And that may result in increased malpractice risk. Interesting. This is a question for both of you, but how do you think we can utilize the results of this study in a targeted way in order to minimize patient harm and hopefully also to reduce malpractice suits in the future? So I think that's a great question, and we outlined in the paper three ways in which we thought the results of this study could inform operational practice. So the first one is related to procedural and team-based simulation. So we know that uh, based on other studies even, that operating room simulation actually decreases providers' actuarial risk of being sued. And so there have been studies in which the insurer can decrease the uh, premium rate for providers who undergo um, simulation training. And so I think that our results are consistent with the fact that potentially uh, procedural simulation may decrease the likelihood of pulmonary critical care docs being involved in uh, malpractice claims. The second one relates to the most common final diagnosis being lung cancer. We are increasingly seeing electronic decision support tools being implemented into the electronic uh, medical record, and they can be helpful to track nodules over time uh, and um, also might be a way to decrease physician malpractice risk. And lastly, I would say closed-loop communication um, is an important skill that should be taught really in residency and fellowship training. Uh, There is a best practice that's put out by the Harvard Malpractice Insurer, CRICO, just in the last two years about how to accept a referral, uh, generate recommendations, and then translate those recommendations back to the primary care provider who had referred them to you in the first place and really delineate who's responsible for ordering tests and following them up and then ultimately relaying the results to the patients. Those sound like some really fascinating ideas that could potentially have a great effect. Dr. Zirak, do you have anything to add to those ideas? Yeah, so I think that uh, quite typically Dr. Myers was uh, extremely uh, perceptive and uh, extensive in her recommendations, and I would uh, support them wholeheartedly. Uh, Definitely nodule follow-up is something that uh, is critical, and in many centers around the country there are specific lung cancer screening protocols that uh, do have uh, navigators that follow patients with nodules and make certain that uh, any changes in nodules are communicated to their primary care providers. And I I think that expanding that, making physicians aware that those programs exist, 
is really critical in terms of reducing what was one of the largest categories of uh, malpractice claims, uh, pulmonary nodules that were either overlooked or inadequately pursued. Uh, certainly believe that simulation centers are critical and important in reducing uh, procedure-associated uh, risks. And uh, fortunately, uh, large medical centers like ours have a very uh, sophisticated and thorough uh, simulation program to teach trainees how to perform procedures in a safe uh, manner. And then lastly, I, I do want to comment on the what I would call handoff issues or communication issues, because when patients are in the hospital and then get discharged, the process of communicating what went on in the hospital and what needs to be followed up to primary care providers is something that I suspect uh, we need to work on a little more intensively. And some of the uh, claims that Dr. Myers has identified are a consequence of poor communication between providers. And I think that um, the nature of our healthcare system, the fact that we now uh, infrequently have primary care doctors who spend time in hospitals, their role has been largely replaced by hospitalists, makes the communication of information that was acquired during a hospitalization a little more challenging to get into the primary care uh, provider's uh, office space. Excellent points. Now, Dr. Myers, you noted that the median open claim time was a year and a half. And Dr. Zebrak, in your editorial, you stated that 99% of high-risk specialists, like pulmonary and critical care physicians, will be served with a malpractice claim. So I'm looking at these numbers thinking that 99% of us will have at least one malpractice claim, and then that claim is going to be open for an average of a year and a half which seems like it could have a great effect, um, unfortunately a great negative effect, um, on us as physicians um, since that's a significant portion of our life. Dr. Zebrak, I was wondering, how do you think these prolonged times will affect the physicians involved in the suit and potentially their patients? So I think that when a physician is served with a claim, it's really a uh, crisis in that particular individual's life because uh, all of us regard what we do with great um, sincerity and integrity, and a claim suggests that we've done something that's seriously wrong, and a claim that results in what uh, plaintiffs are thinking is an unnecessary death is really an overwhelming uh, sadness and burden upon a physician who has been... Um, implicated in that circumstance. So, you know, I, I think that patients, uh, uh, physicians rather, go through a grieving process and a self-doubt and self-esteem uh, crisis that oftentimes lasts until the claim is uh, ultimately settled. Excellent. Now, Dr. Myers, you mentioned that you would have liked to be able to collect data on physician disclosure and apology. What did you mean by that? And are early resolution programs the way of our future in addressing these? Well, it's a great question. There is a lot of innovation taking place in this space, um, but it is varying by state. So I'll give you the example in Massachusetts. 
Uh, we have a mandatory disclosure law in Massachusetts in which providers have to disclose any unanticipated outcomes or complications to patients or families at the time that they're happening. And in my training, we have specific sessions on how to do this. And certainly the spirit of the law tries to address the asymmetric information that exists within healthcare, um, and that is that patients and families don't necessarily understand the implications of all of the labs and all of the imaging findings, and they might not know what to expect even in every clinical scenario, especially when things get complicated with multiple, multiple organ failure in the ICU. But in the current status of um, malpractice in Massachusetts, that disclosure and apology statement is actually not admissible in court. There are, however, been some exceptions if there was some sort of controversy, for example, among the parties that were present during the disclosure. And so um, there are uh, some hospitals in the Boston area, like Beth Israel and uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, that have started to look at this um, early adoption program. And um, essentially what that means is the programs are trying to figure out which cases um, in their healthcare system, both inpatient, both outpatient, um, in which the patients um, experienced an adverse event in, and they, uh, that the healthcare system has failed to meet the standard of care. Um, and they try and do that before claims are filed. And then uh, devise a way to compensate patients and families. Um, these sorts of programs obviously are appealing because they take uh, the healthcare teams and the patients and families and put them on the same side of the issue as opposed to having them be on opposite sides of a dispute or a claim. And we are in the very early stages of those programs. I think they're very promising. Um, but I think one way in which the work that we published in CHESS might uh, inform those programs is um, the cases that are identified in the programs, uh, sorry, the cases that are identified in our data might be what the programs are using for compensation to understand which cases are most likely in our current court system to actually uh, result in payment. Over time, I really think that those programs have the ability to become their own gold standard and actually be more accurate in terms of compensating patients and families compared to the current system we have. But obviously, this is going to be um, an evolutionary process, and it will also depend very much on the state regulations. So certainly, it's an in innovative concept uh, with promise. It's obviously very early in development, um, but I think it's a really interesting concept. And one thing that you mentioned that I really liked is that these programs place the healthcare teams and the patients and families on the same side of the issue. And I feel that um, particularly in the um, American medical culture, there is sometimes an increasing uh, amount of distrust in physicians and the medical system from the general public. And initiatives like this that may help to put us on the same side of these issues and show patients that we care as much as they do about these errors and we want to make them right and constantly work towards minimizing errors but also making sure that we're just doing what's right for patients and their families. I hope that um, attitudes and programs like this can ultimately help to restore some of that 
um, trust that I feel like we may be losing in some ways. Exactly. Now, so I, I'd like to uh, comment on that as well, actually. So I, I think that uh, apology and disclosure are right regardless of whether or not we have a program uh, or are looking at uh, impact and benefits of that. I think we should be looking at impact and benefits. But uh, from for the reasons that you've just suggested, because we want to uh, be trusted at, by our patients and we want patients to believe that we're acting in an honest and forthright manner, when something happens that is different from what we anticipated, relaying that to patients, uh, talking about uh, why that happened, and then apologizing when appropriate seems to me to be just good medical practice. And uh, I believe that, in general, good medical practice, uh, responding to issues like Dr. Myers brought up in the paper that we're discussing, being aware of circumstances where harm can occur and doing whatever we can to limit that harm and making patients aware of programs that we've developed that try and identify high-risk circumstances, reduce the risk of harm, and then communicating to patients when we fall short of the goals we've uh, set for ourselves uh, is what we should be doing and what we hopefully have been doing all along, but in a less formalized and less well-studied manner. Absolutely. Dr. Zebrak, can you speak to the literature on physician disclosure and how applicable that data may be to physicians who might be practicing in settings outside of academic medical centers? Yes. So, as Dr. Myers has alluded to, most of the studies that we have about uh, disclosure and apology have uh, been done in settings similar to the one in which the two of us practice and not as much in um, community hospitals or in uh, private office settings. And this has been a part of the training that Dr. Myers has had and many of our fellows have had in the last five to ten years, but not training that physicians who uh, were practicing and training uh, in years past had often received. So we hopefully are setting a new standard that will ultimately proliferate throughout the entire medical community, but the results that we've had in academic centers might not uh, be results that we would see in other settings outside of the places where this data has been acquired. Excellent point. Um, Dr. Myers, can you speak to what may be some future directions for your research? Yes, it's definitely an exciting field. So we have a couple of studies underway. Um, we think that one will come out uh, looking at critical care nursing um, and the malpractice risk um, uh, for them. We uh, preliminarily found that the most common diagnosis of claims involving critical care nurses uh, was the cubitus ulcers, and those uh, were occurring in about a quarter of claims. And so um, that's an interesting area, and I hope will similarly um, provide us with opportunities to uh, prevent the harms and the claims uh, from happening in the future. 
Another study that we're uh, in the process of uh, wrapping up and submitting is on uh, the influence of autopsy results on malpractice claim outcome. And again, preliminarily, we find that patients who had autopsies, uh, regardless of whether there were um, diagnostic um, uh, errors involved, um, did not result in uh, more, uh, a higher likelihood of uh, claims being paid. Uh, so that's some of uh, the work that's coming down the pipeline. Excellent. I'm looking forward to reading more about um, these studies that you mentioned and so the future work. Yes, Dr. Zebrak. So I, have a, I do have another um, question that I wanted to raise. Uh, so in my experience as an expert witness, what I've found over many years, and I'd be very curious about uh, your opinions about this, is that a lot of claims that arise are not really malpractice per se, they're unexpected poor outcomes. And I anticipate some of the conversation we had before about disclosure and apology might uh, relate to this, but I wonder whether or not there's a way that we can independently assess and communicate better when patients have poor but not unexpected outcomes as opposed to outcomes that are a consequence of not following guidelines or falling below the standard of care of physicians in a particular uh, practice setting. I think it's a great point. I think that setting the stage for families is extremely important, and I think that we do it fairly well in the intensive care unit, but it could translate to the inpatient setting for, you know, expectations for after discharge or in the outpatient setting. I think that uh, there are some uh, actually laws, for example, in Massachusetts that try to promote that. So, for example, in the 2012 health reform law, there uh, was a uh, statute about a cooling off period and a re request for information. And I think that was put in place to really try and uh, have an exchange of information, a dialogue uh, prior to a claim actually um, being um, uh, pursued or decided to be pursued. Um, and I think that we have to uh, address emotions too. Um, I think when there's an adverse outcome, uh, patients and families are um, uh, angry, upset, um, scared, and I think that those emotions have to be addressed by providers, uh, whether it's the provider, uh, you know, the, the attending provider. Um, I think there has to be, honestly, a team, um, and that might involve, um, you know, nursing directors and um, uh, social workers and other folks to really help the family understand uh, what has happened, uh, the implications, and then how to cope. Excellent question. I, I, I totally, yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with that. Uh, we have an ethics service at Beth Israel, which also assists with thorny issues uh, in this uh, space. And then the other uh, point I was just wondering if we should uh, cover is the role of medical tribunals, because medical tribunals uh, exist in uh, different states in New England and have very different roles. The medical tribunal in Massachusetts is really something of a rubber stamp, uh, doesn't really play an active role in resolving uh, malpractice cases. But in Maine, uh, there is a very uh, 
important, I think, medical uh, tribunal uh, system that really looks significantly at a claim before it goes through the court system and uh, I, I think is helpful in sort of addressing some of the issues about uh, adverse outcome as opposed to true uh, malpractice where providers have fallen below the standard of care. Did, did you see any difference in states where there were tribunals com that, that did, did play an active role as opposed to uh, the Massachusetts tribunal, which is pretty much perfunctory? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, the reason that this research can be so difficult is because the tort laws vary so much by state. Uh, and like you said, um, even with uh, two states that are um, geographically close, uh, the um, legal um, milieu is very different. Um, and so uh, sometimes there can be a uh, rejection of claims by tribunals if they feel there isn't merit. Um, but we did not look at that in our study. Um, we did adjust for the clustering within states, but we did not uh, break down uh, the claim results by states. I thought the geographic distribution was interesting as well. With the smallest number of claims happening in the Midwest, the largest happening in the West, second largest in the East, and uh, just below the Midwest claims happening in the South. Do you think there are cultural differences that result in those percentage differences? I think there could be cultural difference, like I said, legal differences. It could also reflect um, the fact that this data is um, a national database and certainly one of the largest um, that exists, um, but it depends on uh, hospital systems providing the data. And so, um, you know, while it encompasses 30% of all claims filed in the U.S., which is quite large, it certainly doesn't account for everyone. And one uh, last question that uh, I found interesting. So in my uh, experience, once again, as an um, expert witness, a large percentage of the cases that I ask, get asked to comment on involve pulmonary emboli. Yet that did not uh, seem to be a significant cause for uh, claims in the database that you reviewed. Any thoughts about that? It's a very interesting question and one that has come up in our other work looking at autopsy claims. The issue with pulmonary embolus is that um, it's kind of this phantom diagnosis sometimes. So uh, when um, there is a suspicion for um, pulmonary embolus, sometimes you know the patients can't be anticoagulated because of a contraindication or can't receive dye for you know confirmatory diagnosis and so sometimes it's found on autopsy and sometimes it's again just presumed and so it is this um, diagnosis that's hard to pin down and especially in these claims where there isn't a definitive diagnosis or autopsy uh, pathology results Well, what an interesting discussion. I'd like to thank both Dr. Myers and Dr. Zebrak for sharing their time and expertise with us today on our podcast, and we thank all of our listeners for tuning in. And I look forward to joining you on our next test podcast.